Hey, everybody, real quick before we start the episode this week, we wanted to give you a couple of reminders. We are going to do the charity project we announced last week. We're really excited about it. We're going to give you lots more information as we get a little bit farther down the road. Uh, But for now, we really want to keep building this rail splitter and Lincoln community that we're so proud of so far. And uh, to continue to help us build this community, um, if you get a chance after the episode is done, if you go to iTunes and uh, rate us and give us a review, that would be greatly appreciated. We are currently a five-star podcast, so we appreciate all the reviews and ratings, and everybody's us listening to us and tweeting at us. So, um, yeah, thank you, and enjoy the episode. Yep, thanks. Enjoy the episode. Remember, give us a rating, and please uh, tell your friends to take a listen to the show. Enjoy this week's show. This week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast, we are live at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library with Dr. James Cornelius, the curator of the Lincoln Collection. These two great gentlemen are dedicated to a proposition. to each other. And Welcome to the eighth episode of The Rail Splitter. We are at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. I'm your co-host, Jeremy. Along with me is co-host, Nick. What's up? It's really hot down here. It, so it we, is we hot were in a tornado, our last one. Now we are in the middle of a heat wave. I think, what is it, 150? <laughs> with real, <laughs> Just real under that. Yeah, the <laughs> real field. We are here with Dr. James Cornelius, the curator of the uh, Lincoln Collection here at the Abraham Lincoln Library. Welcome, Dr. Cornelius. Thanks, Jeremy. Glad to be here, and thanks for coming down to the heat wave. Oh, <laughs> it, no is, and it is hot. So we are so happy to be here, and I want to start today's show um, just by kind of going through one of my experiences at uh, across the street at the museum with a piece from the uh, Lincoln Collection and then kind of take that into a conversation about what you do here at the library. And I've gone to the, I've been a member for... Hey, yeah. set the stage for this. How old are you? I'm 37. No, Here's, when you when you have this moment that you're about oh, to Oh, 35, maybe? Not that long ago. Were you wearing that jean jacket? I like to make fun of you. He for makes wearing. fun of me a lot. So, um, But anyway, I've been to the museum... Dozens and dozens of times. Been a member for seven, eight years or so. Um, but anyway, there was they kind of, um, or you all kind of rotate in different artifacts in the yeah um, in the exhibit. And, and there was for a time a copy of the Gettysburg Address written in Lincoln's own hand. Mm-hmm. And as I came there and, and and took that in and kind of looked at such an important speech. On a piece of paper written by Abraham Lincoln himself, it was just so moving um, to the point of tears, I'll be honest. I don't know if anybody actually knows that or not. but You're not the only one. Um, but that feeling to me was just so, I mean, that will, that will stay with me forever just to kind of see that and, and to, to live in that moment. So my, my question for you is, how do you surround yourself with all that stuff all day long <laughs> and not just you know, not be overwhelmed? Like yeah. <laughs> I do get choked up sometimes. I can imagine. I get choked up sometimes reading the Gettysburg, bo- Gettysburg Address in a printed book that just arrived, or some of other uh, Lincoln writings, but holding the original is um, a little nervous-making, but it's a national honor 
it's a world responsibility in some ways to handle some of these things. That's the headline piece, probably. His stovepipe hat, one of three that survived today, is another one. A signed copy of the Emancipation Proclamation is maybe the third one. Mary Lincoln's diamond necklace, which is on view right now in the museum, is another one. It's, um, it's about as exciting as you can get if you're not an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> That's well said. That's well said. So take us through kind of what is your job? What do you do at the library as the curator of the Lincoln Collection? I, I sit here in the library most of the time, Jeremy, and I get over to the museum with some regularity, but I field questions from the public a lot of the day on email mostly, uh, by phone, some people walking in, especially here in the month of July and the other high visitation months, people who have questions about books or stories from their great-grandparents, and it's usually possible to help them out. I'd probably spend half to 70% of my time doing that, depending on the season. Otherwise, I'm planning the next exhibits. You mentioned rotating changing out mm -hmm. the historic things that are in the museum. At any time, there are about 100 original historic items on view through the various rooms of the main galleries. Mm -hmm. Then the temporary exhibit, which right now has the first ever exhibit about the Cardinals and the Cubs rivalry, mm -hmm. which is really Go fun. Cubs. Yep. Yeah. We're, we're both Cub fans. <laughs> yeah, go Cards. Okay. And, oh. <laughs> and uh, hey, the state split. Yeah, Here we are. It's, it's, it's but why these 100 the items, mm -hmm are almost all changed out every six to 18 months. So if you haven't been here in two years, you haven't seen anything that's currently on display, probably. The Gettysburg Address, yes, it does go back out on display for brief periods now and then, but we're trying to limit that because we want it to be around 100 years from now, 300 years from now, so people can see it then too. Ink fades mm -hmm. in daylight paper slowly gets weaker. And uh, it's really challenging and fun, imaginative work to put together little themes about the Lincoln's lives, to go into those 33 different cases in the museum that hold original material. Yeah, and I, I, I've enjoyed that. And like, you know, a lot of people ask like, how, why are you going to the same museum a hundred times? And that's exactly why, because it's different every time. And, and I enjoy kind of watching people go through and watching yeah. others and some of my other moving experiences there are watching young people see these things and watching you know people who I don't know just kind of looking at their reactions as they walk through and that's just just neat you know it's part something of that, that we've like both done as educators is we've taken a group of kids down mm -hmm. here and I've been doing it for about six years now we come down um, for one of my classes and then I know you were doing it when mm -hmm. you're in the classroom and seeing them go through it's awesome these high school kids who get such an appreciation of the setup and then I believe one of the one of the temporary exhibits was a Fort Sumter exhibit. Mm -hmm. I remember, and I, and I love that one yeah. because just all the detail and just the politics and the decision making that Lincoln went through, and the yeah. way you guys told that story by setting it up was really, yeah. really well done. That was fun because it was based on thirty pages of Doris Kearns Goodwin's book *Team of Rivals*, which is a terrific book, and it's about seven hundred pages nearly. Mm -hmm. And you just take thirty pages of that, which is this critical moment in world history in some respects and a real management lesson on who you listen to, what your priorities are, 
how badly can you fail if you do fail, or what is necessary to succeed. And some of these things are hard to put together in a visual sense. Words on the page are one thing, but finding historic artifacts and relics from that kind of moment is a different thing. But they always supplement the kinds of reading that students or professors know about the basic events. You've got to see some of these things in three dimensions in real life. It's all alive still. Well, especially in this day and age with the, with the teenage kids, high school kids, they love to see that stuff right before them and to actually see this. It brings that connection. Yeah. I always talk about, um, I do a lot with oral history, but I think this is true with artifacts. It provides that vivid detail of history. Because when you read about it in a book, it's just kind of yeah. a glazed picture in your head. Then they get to see this thing, and then that's when it becomes the life, and they get more invested into it. So yeah. you guys do a great job. How well, do you decide some of those exhibits that you put out there? Well, for the big exhibits in the temporary gallery, like that one on uh, the Fort Sumter crisis, it takes a couple years, three years planning sometimes. The um, goal in a, in a museum that's fully staffed and fully funded, unlike this one currently, is to have about a five-year plan so that you can really investigate the topic and call the relevant other collections, usually public collections, but sometimes private owners, and get on loan some key things that you'd like to include. Uh, but we've done some things on a much shorter time scale because we can pull from our own collections, which are huge, for the bulk of it. And it's a question of serving a variety of interest groups, and that's not a political statement, because some people want to know about Mary Lincoln, and some people want to know about Abraham's assassination, and some people want to know about the war, and some people want to know about his Illinois years and everything that he was doing involving industry and agriculture. And we try to touch on a little bit of that over time. And of course, some people want to know all about the Cubs and cards, go cards. <laughs> and, and that's been a really popular exhibit. It's here till the end of the year. And when the playoff season comes around in October, we expect uh, both to be involved and we'll <laughs> see lots of their fans again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I'm jealous. I, I would love to be. Is it because uh, nobody's applying for this to help <laughs> out? Because I put my application in now. <laughs> well, and that's and that's interesting too. And I don't want to get too into the political side of things, but how different the Abraham Lincoln Museum is versus other presidential museums? Because this is through the, if I'm not mistaken, through the state of Illinois. Yes. Um, because I last was it last month I was at the the JFK Museum mm -hmm. in Boston, um, and they were kind enough to give me admission with my. Lincoln membership, even though they weren't supposed to, <laughs> which was really nice. Yeah, we um, are part of a time travelers right, yeah, I'm uh, in that, a yep. consortium of mm -hmm. museums that mm -hmm. will let you in for free if you're a member here at this foundation, right. but not all are part of it. Right, and as I said, I would recommend membership. It, I've enjoyed it. The publication is fun to read that, that comes with the membership, four score and seven, right? Yeah. Um, and it's been great, even though we're three hours away. Um, <laughs> it's still fun to come down. But, um, yeah, it is important, I think, that the, these artifacts – which I believe belong to the people, in a sense. Exactly. Stay safe. Yeah, the um, state holds them for the public. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Like they're they're ours in a sense, but whether they were donated here or whether they were purchased, mm -hmm. they belong to the people of Illinois. Right. It, it's and the other thing about kind of the 
and you were, we were talking a little bit offline about like the, the, the small items or the seemingly insignificant. It's so fun to see how people latch on to Lincoln so much. Like we're, we we're out of Rockford, Illinois. And as far as we know, Lincoln spent, I believe one or two days in Rockford as part of the Reaper case. Yeah. Um, and we love that. There's a Lincoln uh, bus that we have in our downtown mm-hmm. square. And like, we're, we're like latching on to the fact that like he was here, like he was in our city. And he was there during the Black Hawk War or somewhere right. very close. Stillman, yeah. Illinois is uh, like a small town just outside of Rockford. And they, they've got a big um, obelisk kind of thing um, commemorating his time there. And they're kind of claiming that that's where the Black Hawk War experience was, which is just outside of Rockford, which is kind of, it's fun to kind of think about like, we how we latch on to like you know he was here and yeah. every older home claims that he stayed a night there and you know every town does this <laughs> yeah so and so i'm uh, so in your work like how often does that come up where someone is insisting that this is a lincoln artifact or like the fact that that the man touched something makes yeah. it incredible makes, makes it holy almost <laughs> it comes up pretty often jeremy mm-hmm. that roughly 50 percent of my day when i'm answering questions from the public that's a, a sizable part of it. It's either people who want to know, did Lincoln ever set foot in Hayworth, Illinois, or in Wheeling, West Virginia, or some town in upstate New York. They, they had a real good case at one point that Lincoln had visited the reservation where Eli Parker, Genu Ulysses Grant's assistant in the Civil War, who was Seneca Indian, I believe, mm-hmm. Uh, that Lincoln had actually been on that reservation. It's not too far from Buffalo, New York. And it's not true. (laughs) It's not true. The circumstantial evidence is barely there. But if you look at the real facts and you use a little bit of logic, it's not true. But when you can't categorically disprove things, people will hold on to a story. Or let's put it in a more positive way. People think it's still worth researching, mm-hmm. and it might be right. There is constantly, constantly new information about Lincoln's life appearing. Most of it's pretty small, and when I mean his life, I also mean his, his wife, his parents, his children, mm-hmm. that build us a bigger picture so that he's not just one single person out of 35 million Americans roughly at the point when he died, but he's part of this bigger world. And, um, and it's not true that we're all connected, but if you live in Springfield, Illinois, as he did, when it had somewhere between two and 9,000 people in it during his stay, he knew most people by face. Mm-hmm many of them by name, and then lots of people around the way, around the area, too. So the the fun of doing history this way is to find out this huge lattice of coincidence that uh, a former boss here, Tom Schwartz, I think he coined that phrase. Mm-hmm. It's the lattice of coincidence that some law partner of Lincoln's in a northern county was the brother of somebody in a southern county and they all came from Ohio (laughs) and one of them then was a soldier under General Grant in the war. Mm -hmm. This kind of thing. And that's what makes it live again when you realize that one person or one family has got this connection to so many things. 
It's right. like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I said <laughs> we should do six degrees of Lincoln. Well, there was, a, there was a play called that here in Springfield a few years ago. Oh. And it, it's true. It, I mean, it comes down to um, Steve Goodman, the guy mm -hmm. who wrote City of New Orleans. And Go, and, uh, go Cubs Go. Go Cubs Go. Yeah. <laughs> go Cards. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. So he actually has one of those. He's about three degrees separated from Lincoln. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow, and and that's that's so. Right, can that's, we say Lincoln's a Cubs fan then? <laughs> I think mm. we can draw the line. <laughs> he, he was uh, he was a moderate. I think he would have cheered for both teams. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, he's smart season. When he's in Northern Illinois, he knows what to say. When he's in Southern Illinois, he knows what to say. Nicely yeah. answered. I yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, and I think that's something that just fascinates me about Lincoln is you know like like Grant for example lived in Galena for a long time yeah. and it's at the time I believe it was nearly impossible to take a train to Galena without going through Rockford. You know, right. We called it Midway because it was Midway between Chicago. Chicago and then Galena or out west in the state but no one really claimed like no one really says like this was the train depot that Grant always went through yeah. going to Galena or like like there's it's just not a thing but if Lincoln stepped foot in a town that's sacred yeah. you know like right. I just I love that about well, it. well it's well, almost sacred go ahead go ahead well Nick. you go to Galena you go to the DeSoto house I mean they got pictures all over Lincoln was here right. at one point promoting that you know so I mean you even see it in Galena, which is supposed to be kind of Grant's town, right. um, in a sense. Um, so you see Lincoln's there. I mean, he's but everywhere. You're, you're right that it's, it's a sacred place if you can identify that Lincoln was there. But that's not always true. And every day there's some old historic house being torn down in this country. Mm -hmm. And maybe or maybe not will we ever know that it was important for George Washington or Gerald Ford or Abraham Lincoln, whatever. The, the most recent one is a little train depot that is um, it's near Dwight, Illinois, and it's not a place that the funeral train stopped in 1865 on the route from Chicago to Springfield, but it did go through. And so now this little old unused depot is threatened with demolition. And all they can say is Lincoln's funeral train went through here and shouldn't it be saved for that reason well yes and no but what about the two and a half million other people who ever rode a train through there in the 19th century alone and then you get to the 20th century well there's a lot of terrain with a lot of people out here mm -hmm. yeah and that's yeah i it's interesting and and, and we're we've kind of talked about this a couple times about what what historic what historic documents are and saving them because we we talked a little bit a couple episodes ago about lack you know cuts in funding and there's no you know people looking through and digitizing everything and all that kind of stuff and how yeah. that we're, we're, how that worries us a little bit as Lincoln enthusiasts that this stuff we don't want it to be lost yeah yeah, it, yeah I agree I, I was thinking of one thing here and I, I was looking online I know um, I believe it was like 2002 or something you had to there was a mary todd lincoln picture mm -hmm. and they thought it was an original yes and you were part of telling them it wasn't correct how <laughs> is it breaking hearts <laughs> oh we break a lot of hearts when we can prove to people that your great-grandfather didn't live in illinois when you know great-grandma said he did and therefore didn't know lincoln somewhere we do that a lot but this painting was a painful and an instructive case. It had been given to us in 1978 by the last Lincoln descendant, Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith, who gave us a lot of great things out of the 
the old mansion in Vermont where, <laughs> where his grandfather had retired to. It had been acquired by Bob Beckwith and his mother in about 1930 from a New York art dealer on 57th Street, pretty fancy location for buying art. And it was a supposedly unknown rediscovered portrait of Mary Lincoln by Francis Carpenter, the painter who lived in the White House. We don't know if he slept there, but he was there every day in 1864 for many months to paint that great scene of the cabinet discussing the Emancipation Proclamation. That painting hangs today in the U.S. Capitol building. Beautiful. Well, guess what? It was a fraud. So Bob Lincoln and his mother, Jessie, Bob Beckwith and his mother, Jessie Beckwith, were defrauded by this New York art dealer who probably knew that it was a fake, that once the conservator, Barry Bauman, the guy who does pro bono work for us and for other nonprofit museums, was cleaning the painting, he noticed, shall we say, certain irregularities about the colors and where the varnish was and where the signature was and all these things. And I said, Barry, if you see something funny, you do your job for us, please. Strip it down. What a conservator does is strips it down to the original surface. We don't want the varnish. We don't want the in-painting by later, sometimes damaging conservators. 100 years ago, they didn't know the chemistry about stuff that we do now. So he did and just discovered this woman is not Mary Lincoln. But she's been touched up to look like Mary Lincoln so that we could get three, four thousand bucks apparently out of Lincoln's descendants. So now we have a great story and a painting that's worth much less money. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad it didn't get discovered till after the whole family were gone. Yeah. And uh, they didn't have to um, see that they'd been defrauded. So. It's, it's funny, at a place like this where all the Lincoln descendants are gone, we don't have their knowledge, we don't have their money, we don't have their interference, we can tell the story as it actually comes along. This is different from the more recent federally run presidential libraries that are under the National Archives system, like the Kennedy, mm -hmm. like the Clinton, like the Nixon, like the Carter, certainly the Obama one that's starting up now, who actually opted out of the regular National Archives system, are faced with. You have the assistance of and the personal possessions of President X to put on display thanks to the family and their wealthy friends can help you support the whole thing. And then you have to listen to their ideas about things. And we don't have that problem mm -hmm. here. The one small example uh, at the Ronald Reagan Library, for example, everyone knew that Nancy Reagan was his second wife, much beloved, very devoted. And Nancy Reagan didn't really want to see any pictures of Ronnie's first wife, Jane Mansfield. What was her Possibly. name? She was That's an, an actress. actress. Yeah, she was an actress, yeah. too. I mean, mm -hmm. whoever, you know, she wasn't in the museum. Mm -hmm. Well, that has now changed. Oh, okay. So mm -hmm. you will get the straight story. Look, there's a nice picture of Ronald Reagan with his first wife, very attractive lady. They were happy together for a few years. Mm -hmm. And um, that spot in his life isn't just skipped anymore. So we don't have to do that now. But 
they do have to do it to some extent for other presidents today. Do you, kind of along those same lines though, like, and we've talked a lot about this on our show, there's some, some you know, we, we look at Lincoln's life as a whole, as his evolution on slavery, on abolition, and, you know, he wrote and said some things that are uncomfortable to, to address. Yes. And I'm sure you have some, may, maybe have some correspondence where he's written that. Um, has that ever come up as a consideration for display or not, and how yes, do you wrestle with that? It, it is. Well, it's, Jeremy, it's the big question, and there are hundreds of books about the question of when exactly Lincoln became a fully anti-slavery person and what he thought his powers were in that regard as a state legislator, as a congressman, as a potential senator, which he never got to be, mm -hmm. and then as president, and before a war and during a war. What are the various powers? And our Constitution at the state level and at the federal level doesn't spell out exactly what you can and can't do for every single instance. He just knew that under the U.S. Constitution, slavery was accepted. And that in state constitutions, it was either accepted or rejected. Well, Lincoln's own words are usually our best guide. But he's like the US Constitution. He didn't always say precisely what he felt every year about every situation. We just know that he was absolutely, sincerely appalled by slavery, always had been, died that way too. And yet, does it make him dictator who can banish it from every corner of the land, even as a president during the war? He could do it by military actions in some places with the Emancipation Proclamation during the war, but then it had to be passed by civilians because this is a nation of laws run by civilians. And it's why he overturned two different generals during the war who tried to end, to ban slavery in their districts at some point. Lincoln turned around immediately and said, no, you can't do that. You're a general. You're not a member of Congress. Right, and uh, that kind of aligns with kind of an ongoing thesis that we have that Lincoln was not an, uh, an abolitionist. He was not a, a human rights activist. He was a politician. So he did what he did mm -hmm. in that world and actually got it accomplished ultimately right. with the 13th Amendment. So knowing the landscape in front of him and the structures that he was working through, I argue, did what he did knowing that that's how he had to do it because right. otherwise he otherwise we wouldn't be talking about him. Otherwise he'd be a garrison. Or, yeah, you know. I, I agree with you mostly, Jeremy, but there are, two, there are two responses to that. First of all, people can be judged by their words, especially politicians, but really they ought to be judged by their actions. Mm -hmm. okay? It doesn't matter what Lincoln believed. What he did was lead this movement, and he wasn't alone, but he led this movement as president to end slavery far faster and far earlier than anyone thought was possible when he was sworn in in 1861. Mm -hmm. He himself at one point thought it would take maybe till 1900. At another point, he thought it would take about 100 years. 
And he was actually right in that sense. From the point he said that was 100 years to the Brown v. Board mm -hmm. of Education mm -hmm. ruling in 1954 because he understood human nature. So the president is good in our layman's opinions or views, retrospect, if he or maybe someday she is good enough at understanding human nature to make the laws and public opinion kind of follow and conform all at once. Lincoln knew that whites and blacks didn't get along all that well together in the places he'd lived and that this would take a while, but he hoped it would change. And what he starts writing about even, you know, th two, three years before the 13th Amendment is on paper is that he hopes a system of education, this, this is the term he wants, that he wants education to begin to help change the opinions and the lives of young blacks and of young whites, and that he says that they've got to learn to live out their differences. Do you you can't tell people to change their opinions mm -hmm. by next Tuesday. That's a dictatorship. Do you think Lincoln, so we got the 13th Amendment, kind of the end game here for this question I'm yeah. asking. Do you think he was a strategist an opportunist or a combination of the both? Uh, yes, I think a combination in the sense he was a deft manager. He played his strengths very well in the timing. The best argument against those who say that Lincoln could have worked harder and faster to end slavery is to say your heart's in the right, in the right place, but you've probably never even been on a city council because he knew that most of the soldiers from Illinois would have walked away from their units if he had said slavery's over in November of 1861. Or if he'd said in March of 1862, blacks are now going to be soldiers arm in arm with whites, okay? He knew that he'd lose a majority of his army and then he'd lose Kentucky, he'd lose Maryland, he'd lose the war, he'd lose half the nation. And it wouldn't have ended the war, in my opinion. You would have had abolitionists from the North invading the South ad nauseum, like a guerrilla war for decades. That's my opinion. John Brown, Rita Vivis, over and over, mm -hmm. because the issue had to be addressed. So Lincoln knew that opinion was divided. Here in this town, Springfield, Illinois, is on the Mason-Dixon line. So is Indianapolis. Columbus, Ohio is a little bit north of the Mason-Dixon. He knew that thousands and thousands of people, including soldiers, in these states were not anti-slavery. Some of them were pro-slavery, but they sure wouldn't die to fight for it, to fight against it. They cared about George Washington and the Union. And that's what Lincoln's ace up the sleeve was for some situations. Right, that's very well said. And that's, you know, and I think that helps as you wrestle with like maybe some unfortunate documents you have here. I mean, you know, it's just not, I don't want to say unfortunate, but without that perspective, you could read a letter or, you know, yeah. an anecdote or, or even, you know, 
some one of his contemporaries talking about how he talked about race and be like, right. <laughs> well, the yeah, it's it's hard now. The the one that's most often quoted is from the fourth debate against Douglas in 1858 in Charleston, Illinois, which was more or less Democratic territory. It was actually more or less where Lincoln's whole family, his <laughs> stepfamily, lived. His mm-hmm. father had died seven years earlier. It was mostly a pro-slavery area, and he said that he did not believe that whites were the equal of blacks. He did not believe that whites and blacks should intermarry uh, that, or that blacks should serve on juries. Okay, that's not what we think today, but none of it actually falls into the responsibility of a United States senator. So does it matter if United States Senator Smith today says all dogs in Coles County, Illinois should be chained up. Well, Senator so-and-so doesn't have any power to chain up Mm -hmm. all dogs Mm -hmm. in Coles County, nor to determine who can sit on juries, nor to determine who can get a driver's license or who can marry. These are state-level things. And what Lincoln is arguing that day is actually arguing for the people who are running for state legislature from the Republican Party in that area because the public didn't vote for senators in 1858. The legislators did. Well, the public wants to hear him say something that they think comports with their own views, and that's why he's very cagey about certain things. But he's making, first of all, an obvious physical statement. I do not believe blacks and whites are, are equal. Yeah, well, because they're not equal in some respects, like their skin color. Okay, leave it to your imagination. He lets people think what they want to think about how they're not alike. Lincoln knew that the scientists were disagreeing um, at that point. There was a large section of the leading scientists who in the country did not believe that Africans had been created by God at the same time or for the same reason as God had created whites. Leading scientists, anthropologists, linguists, art historians, that blacks were not the racial equals of whites. Lincoln's not a scientist. What's he going to do with that? Mm -hmm. Well, every day today we have lots of politicians out there talking about you name it, the oceans, global warming, recombinant DNA, abortion rights, and the uh, survivability of babies at mm-hmm. certain weeks of after conception. They don't know. They're not scientists. Mm-hmm. Well, they have to. They have to weigh in. Right, and they I have to weigh in. We expect it of them. And Lincoln's in that bind to an extent, much more than we realize today, because he basically drops the question after that. We know only this about Lincoln and science going forward from there. The leading spokesman for that issue, that side, that blacks were not the same as whites racially, was a Harvard professor named Louis Agassiz. And he taught at Harvard when Robert Lincoln was a student there. And gosh, why didn't Robert Lincoln ever take Louis Agassiz's science course. Well, now I think we sort of have a possible explanation for that. Robert and his father said, you know, stay away from that guy. Yeah, and I I think that too often people look at that 
those comments from that debate and then pull that out as a judgment on Lincoln. And that's where I get that argument about him being a politician. I compare it to uh, President Obama saying he evolved on same-sex marriage over time and then yeah, was ready. Like, exactly. I don't believe for a second he evolved. I, I believe he was probably in favor from it for in favor of it for a long, long time, but mm-hmm. knew where the United States was yeah, in 2008. It's a political loser at a certain right. point. And, and, I, and I would argue that they're similar in that regard, where in 2008 it felt like a monumental task, and he did it faster yes. than most and got it got there. And when he said his opinion evolved, People, some people accepted that, and people, and I was just like, I okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you couldn't have said it then. You can say it now, and I think there's a lot of that yeah. in Lincoln as well. I mean, Obama had to let certain states make their point first before he could see that the public opinion, generally, not everywhere, but beginning to change. Right, not unlike Lincoln in a lot of exactly. You know, Lincoln always hoped examples. that Delaware would change its state constitution to ban slavery. He hoped that Maryland would do the same thing, just as all the northern states had done it since 1777. He hoped that the process would simply continue as it had since the founding of the Union, that one by one the states would ban it on their own. Well, it looked like that wasn't going to happen in certain states, and they proved it by taking over the post offices and the fires, you know, the, the, the uh, lighthouses and the U.S. Mint and the fortresses and everything else to prove that they weren't changing their constitutions mm-hmm. on slavery. Mm-hmm. Sitting here kind of listening to you talk about all this stuff, you, you know, it got me thinking about, like, why I love reading Lincoln's speeches. Yeah. I, I find his argument structure to be fantastic. The logic that he uses to get to the point that he's trying to make is, is amazing. Is all his stuff that crisp and that, you know, that oh, yeah. well-structured. Well, not, let's not say all of it, Nick, but the great majority of it. He has remarkably concise and imaginative phrasing. The number of times that in his whole thousands and thousands of surviving writings and speeches that are online, you can search, the number of words that occur only once is in the dozens and dozens. Now think about that. He's got a big vocabulary but you don't think of him as a Shakespeare. He's just very precise in using the right word for the right situation. And he is, um, he's also cagey enough to go go back uh, uh, to a point I was sort of making earlier about how you can say some things in private but not in public yet, and I'm sure Mr. Obama did the same things on gay marriage. You know, the public's not ready, but here we're talking about policy in the office privately. Lincoln writes to a general down in Arkansas once the Union has more or less recaptured Arkansas, and he's thinking like a black person. Okay, we've been sitting here talking about Lincoln talking to white people who can vote, but Lincoln's defending the Emancipation Proclamation, seven, eight months after it's been issued. He says, I think I will not retract it. I will not withdraw it. The promise having been made must be kept. The taste of freedom, this this comes up a, a month later in another letter he writes, you know, the, ta- the promise of freedom having been offered cannot be withdrawn. You know, I, I imagine being told that you're let out of prison and then six months later, up. Oh, 
So we're wrong. You're going back to prison. And, and so Lincoln's sympathy for all people and understanding that they're um, torn by different forces is the most remarkable thing about him in some ways. And then it shows up in his writing. Um, and yeah, that's and that fascinates me too. And I think that that's one of the most intriguing things is to be as brilliant as he was, but still coming across as the the frontier kind of um, you know speaking colloquially and yeah. you know can kind of relate to the to the to the common person type yeah. of personality. And I think that's always a challenge. Like, how do you get the essence of someone's personality without any video? You know, like we're 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 basing it on anecdotes from people that saw him and his writing but they his writing is so crisp and so academic sometimes and so deep and yet his communication style sounds like it's kind of like the down home kind of way you know for lack of a better term yeah um and i think that that's brilliant again like from a political standpoint and just from a working with people Mm -hmm. that's just so amazing to me it is just how you can see every or he thinks of like every angle it seems like looks through everybody's eyes when he's preparing it's just it is absolutely amazing i mean i think that's why he's so well known he was able to lead us through that time is right he had that ability and it's and it's not because he couldn't talk highbrow and mm-hmm. talk in boring detail it's that he knew it wasn't the way to solve the problem you can look at for example a long speech he gave in 1839 when he was in the state legislature here. He's he's the Whig leader, more or less, especially on economic issues. He's delivering it to the legislature. He knows it's not real likely to get into the papers, or at least not much length, but he's compiled all this himself. Lots and lots of figures. Here's why we need to do this. Here's why we need to do this. President Jackson and then President Van Buren's policies on the National Bank or the the Treasury and the Sub-Treasury, detailed, complicated stuff we've kind of lost track of now, is wrong because of this, that, and the other. Lots of figures, okay? Not a speech you're gonna give to the public. If you look then at the annual message to Congress, which still occurs every year, the President gives it, we kind of call it the State of the Union, speech now, it had a lot more detail in it, and he got the relevant, boring details from each of his cabinet secretaries about the treaties we'd signed with A, B, and C, and the, how much revenue came into the Treasury from A, B, and C, and we, we're not all that sure here in the world of Lincoln documentation how much of that he actually wrote or revised himself. It's pretty clear that he didn't need to sometimes, but he is preparing this whole long document over his signature, we take it to mean that Abraham Lincoln delivered this annual message to Congress with all this stuff about how the post office worked and how much money the Navy spent last year and what the new Treasury policy is right now. Did he read it? Almost certainly. Did he change it? Maybe here and there. Did he understand it? Every word of it. And maybe today the president can't possibly understand what 16, 17 cabinet level departments is doing every day. And the president doesn't need to, but Lincoln could and did. Yeah, and I think that speaks to 
his brilliance, his work ethic, his dedication. I mean, it's that's interesting. To shift gears a little bit and get back to kind of your work here at the library and museum, yeah. um, what are some of the things that you, like you kind of mentioned the, the kind of public attention grabbing, yeah. like signature pieces of the muse- of the collection. What are some things that you've come across that maybe aren't quite the headlines that you think are, are super cool? Good question. One, one little case that's in the museum right now, in the Treasures Gallery, uh, I call Tiny Treasures. And remember, not everything is big as, a, as an SUV, SUV these days. Mm-hmm. We've got to put these little things into little cases in the museum. Uh, there was, we think, a soldier who carried this tiny little locket, which looks like it's made of gold. It's probably gold-plated, but a valuable thing. Not to in, be confused with Lincoln's uh, pocket watch, which was the other episode. Yeah, we just right. did an episode did. about that. Okay, okay yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this thing's about an inch and a half, inch and three-quarters tall. Looks like a miniature book. It's got room for four pictures in it, about the size of the nail on your pinky. And one of them is of President Lincoln, and one of them is of General Grant, and one of them's General uh, Meade, and one of them's General Burnside. And somebody was carrying this around with them. And that somebody brought it home and then died, and it ended up in our collection 100 years later. It's fascinating to think about some soldier who's out there wearing a wool uniform (laughs) in (laughs) a 100-degree heat in Mississippi, carrying that thing around. Um, Little photo cards, we call them uh, CDVs, or cartes de visite, um, that were like business cards in that day. There were lots and lots of them made. What's fun in the Lincoln trade is Roughly 100 photographs were taken of him, which was more than all combined from previous presidents. And many of those got made into collectible, saleable CDVs, and most of them didn't. And once in a while, we learn about a new one, a sort of an unusual. But what what's odd is that you, there's some fakery involved here too. You know, we know, for example, that two or three of these famous photographs of him taken before he was president never got sold as a CDV. So somebody who comes along today and says, "Hey, I've got this 1860 picture of him that's a CDV," no, you don't. You've been had, or mm-hmm. you're trying to have me. That was <laughs> made at Daguerreotype Camp in upstate New York, where you can learn how to make a real fake Civil War Daguerreotype mm-hmm. again these days. Um, th- there's a um, there's a fantastic item in the collection that just came off view that almost nobody knows about it. I did write about it in that book, The Hundred Objects of Our Collection. But it's one of the great stories of American history in which California Senator David David Broderick is killed in a duel in 1859 by a Supreme Court judge of California (laughs) named Terry because they disagree over slavery. Now, they're both Democrats, leave that aside, but they're having a personal war over slavery. Broderick's cane, his California oak cane, with this big gold head on it, which is from California Gold Rush Gold, and has his name on it, goes to his second 
the guy who stood up for him behind mm. the uh, behind at the uh, duel. His name is Senator John Conness of California. He got elected senator later, that is. Conness kept that cane for three years and then gave it to Lincoln in thanks for emancipating the slaves. And then Lincoln is killed because he opposed slavery in 1865. So this is the only thing in the world that we're aware of that's a personal artifact. It's a walking stick worth a lot of money in its own right because of the gold head on it and this later ownership carved into that, engraved professionally that is, that exists today from the hands of two different men who were killed because they opposed slavery. Wow, that's fascinating. If you, if you love that story like, like I did, there's 99 more <laughs> in the book under Lincoln's hat. <laughs> the story of the man and his presidency, presidency told through 100 objects. But so that, 99 more stories. And, and we talk from time to time on the show, and I, I really like, because we're in our line of work as educators, we're always interested in how, how do young people or people in general learn about history. And that story you're just drawing lines between different, you know, a couple of different decades and different situations. And like when you have an object, I just feel it's so much easier to kind of relate that. And in, in, in the the other story about the four little photos, you yeah. know, like you could have a whole lesson on the Civil War on why do you suppose these were the four photos? Yeah. You know, because like my immediate thought was Burnside. And, you know, I, when you said, you know, you listen to me, you got to me, you don't get Grant Mead. Well, oh, Burnside kind of surprised me well, a little he, bit. He was, you know? a, he was a big deal for a time there. He yeah. ended up having a kind of a failure in 1863. Right. But, but I think, you know, I think with the Fredericksburg, after the Fredericksburg battle, people certainly gained respect for the courage and audacity and yeah. really bravery of the Union soldiers, all Ill, ill-fated and ill-advised as it was. Yeah. So I, and I think maybe that had something to do. So like I'm kind of thinking like, man, why Burnside? Well, he was so brave at Fredericksburg, but you know, made us. Right. Poor choice, but right. and then goes and shuts it. down shuts down the Chicago Times, the Democratic paper, <laughs> which leaves him in bad odor today too. Which Lincoln overturned right away. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Burnside, kind of a well, two-time loser there, though a very good general in some respects. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's great. I mean, getting as an educator, I'm thinking classroom again. You know, you, you present these objects, and you can almost do it as a warm-up. Hey, what do you think the story is behind this? Kids are invested. Then you give them the story, which. Nine times out of ten is more fascinating yeah. than you know something that that's almost kind of made up sometimes. And then, to me, uh, the power of the artifact a lot of times is the story behind it. Yeah, and that's what makes it so memorable. Um, and or, or even the what if, like yeah. even if, and we were talking about that a little bit on our last show. Like the, the, having you need to have a historic knowledge background to do the the what ifs. But like you're looking at an artifact and you can say all we know is that this was in the Lincoln home. And then you yeah. can kind of start to imagine, like, what was that? How to get there? You know, there. how to get there? How what to get you, out of there? <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, you, and, and then you can, and then you have to learn about history to help your imagination. You know, yeah. and I think that's fun, even if you're making up things that that never happened. Right. There's a fantastic uh, small uh, story for an item we don't own. It's one of that big number that I wish we did. It's at Yale University. It's the book that Lincoln was reading to the cabinet by the humorist Artemis Ward when in 
that day in July 1862, he thought he needed to start the cabinet meeting with a little corn pone humor <laughs> from the backwoods doing the bad accents about dumb people from small towns, laughing it up, and people like Chase and Seward do not think this is funny. <laughs> and then Lincoln puts it down and says, well, gentlemen, I've decided to emancipate the slaves. Let's talk about that. Well, that very book is now at Yale University. And if you ever get the chance to go there and see it, and it's got Lincoln's name in it and this little story about how it got there, sort of for good reasons, sort of for bad reasons, but people who own things later on have a right to do what they want with them. Um, you are going to learn that for the reason of Lincoln's peculiar, let's just say unique, unusual personality, that he can talk about backwards corn pone humor and emancipation in the same 30-second span. <laughs> you get that story by picking up that book. Yeah, and that's, oh, that's great. Can you talk a little bit about the, because we, we were just talking a couple weeks ago about a big collection that was donated to the University of Mississippi. Yeah, in like Mississippi their, State. Excuse me, Mississippi yeah. State, right. What, what part of your work or the museum's work is uh, involved in, trying to get that stuff or how do you, you know, how does that, you know, obviously they can donate right. it to whoever they want, but yeah. do you have to try to lobby to get things? Well, we do sometimes. In the case of um, Judge Frank Williams, uh, for, who was, who retired as the Chief Justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court, who had maybe the biggest private collection of Lincolniana, he had about a hundred documents, some by Lincoln, other Civil War um, greats. Apparently, a book about 16,000 publications about Lincoln, which would rival the biggest collections, which are here and University of Illinois and the Library of Congress. And uh, then a lot of other more modern things, Lincoln coins, Lincoln stamps, some statues, some paintings, just a wonderful, huge collection. Well, Jeremy, we already have all those books. So we don't need those books. We have many of the stamps and coins in the collection here already. Obviously, we don't have original documents. We would have liked to um, make a play for, shall we say. But Judge Williams, who's an old friend of the Lincoln Association based here in Springfield and has been here several times, um, had a right, as you say, to do that. And he made sort of a political statement by giving it to Mississippi State mm -hmm. University, of all places. And maybe that will pan out. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe a lot of people will start going to Mississippi to read about Lincoln, to look at the Frank and Virginia Williams collection of things. Um, don't know if that'll happen, but it's a nice idea. We're on a usually much lower level here. We're knocking ourselves out to try to get one person who owns an unknown Lincoln note from his presidency or maybe a letter from his law career or maybe a Mary Lincoln letter to consider donating it or selling it to us because that's a lot of money in its own right. Mm -hmm. The Williams collection that went to Mississippi State was appraised at about $3 million dollars and they gave a half a million dollars for the, the curation of it over the next few years. Um, that's a big gift, and our foundation these days can't afford anything like that. So 
we're always on the lookout for new things. Mostly it's people who come to us. Once in a while we do approach people we've heard about or known 10, 20 years ago owned a certain thing. And we do that because it makes news, but also because we want to be able to show it to the public. No one's ever going to see, no one's ever going to see the stuff that's in private collections that get given to big universities or smaller university libraries or museums in various places, especially at big museums that do lots of different things, because Lincoln isn't their bread and butter. But it, he is here. <laughs> we're, you know, we're all Lincoln all the time here. Right. 24-7. And we've had 4.3 million people come through the museum in 12 years. And they get to see these things. So it's, it's hard for people who collect stuff. If you've got 10 things, if you've got 30,000, the way the Williamses did, whether you want to keep your name on it, keep it all together in perpetuity, you're going to have to find a special place that doesn't have any of it and wants it. Or you're going to have to break it up. And a lot of people just sell it off on eBay. That's why we were so grateful um, 10 years ago now to Louise Taper, who had by far the biggest private collection at the time, who wanted to keep her collection here and sold it to our foundation. She gave some of it, she sold most of it here so that the people of Illinois and everywhere in the world could see it. She could have got a lot more money if she'd taken it to Christie's and Sotheby's, broken it up. Uh, so it, it's, it's tough and we're sort of in the same boat. We do and don't want to see collections kept together. Mm -hmm. well, and one thing too, we're not Lincoln scholars, but we are Lincoln enthusiasts, so we read a lot of Lincoln scholars and um, it's obviously not a lucrative profession. So to go to, if, if they're trying to get things that are all over the world and certainly all over the country, that may be difficult. So like in my mind, I'm like, man, if the, the more stuff that's here, the better because then someone can just yeah. come here. And, and even you know. when it's not on view, and of course a tiny percentage of what we have is ever on view in the museum, you can come over here to the library and read any book. Uh, if you're gonna look at books that Lincoln himself or Mary owned, I'm going to stand by you and probably hold them, but you're welcome to see it. And we've got modern copies of, of everything else. And um, you can't see all the documents in Lincoln's own hand, uh, generally speaking, but I'll show you one or two if you've got a specific interest and you can read his handwriting as a photocopy and increasingly, of course, things are scanned and online too. We're moving in that direction here, of course, like most places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I come across anything, I will give you my Lincoln artifact. <laughs> I am on record saying that. The if I'm in Freeport and I come you. across something that's All right. there. God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, we're getting a little short on time, so there's a couple of things I wanted to do. Um, one thing uh, I wanted just to ask you, and I don't want to put you on the spot. I love the museum. I've been mm -hmm. a member. I come here three, four times a year, um, and it's a place of comfort for me. However, I do mm -hmm. have one one issue, I guess, one thing I want to ask bark, you about. Bark it out. Um, the only person who has, and I like the wax figures, I think they're so cool, but the Le only person. Latex. 
What's that? Latex. Late, sorry, wax. latex. Sorry. Okay. Other figures, whatever. Yeah. whatever. Um, they are good. The only person not let, with the last name of Lincoln who's in there more than once is is John Wilkes Booth. And there's the, you know, he's standing outside the White House, and then there's the scene in Ford's Theater. He's gone from the White House. Really? Is he, that that's he new? He was removed in April. Okay. That's you're, good. you're glad of that. I am. Um, We've had a few comments by mm -hmm. people who are not glad about it, but it was the director's decision. I think with the goal that we'd like to see people focusing on, as you do, Lincoln himself. Read about Lincoln. Everybody's interested in the assassination, but maybe there are other things. So as it is, you're right. Booth is there now only in the Ford's okay. Theater Good. season. Scene. Right, which I also... I understand the importance of it and everything. I just, I would compare it. I was at the Kennedy Museum, like I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. It would be, I think if, if someone saw a figure of Lee Harvey Oswald there, it would be quite striking. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, the romanticism around the Lincoln assassination in Booth himself, I think he shows up a lot, and it, which is strange to me because he's a murderer. Mm -hmm. you know. And, and then there's that scene that's where he's kind of depicting right before a murder. You know, and it's yeah. moving, for sure. But... Um, I just I just kind of wanted like of all the, the things to put in there how that decision may have been made or at least what your th I don't know if you were involved in that at all yeah. but what your decision or what your feelings about that or we I I'm I'm torn Jeremy I mean it, change is hard for everybody and that plaza is dramatic of course in many ways when you walk into it the figures right behind where Booth used to stand maybe deserve a little more of our attention namely General McClellan and General Grant. Mm -hmm which is slightly um, unusual because they never did actually stand and have tea together at the I, White I, House. I have that Whereas too. <laughs> Booth did stand outside the White House and uh, plot his murder of Lincoln. But that's a separate point. The, the heroes, the people who saved the Union and fought to uh, preserve it, deserve a lot of our attention. And those on the other side of the door, Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass, they deserve a lot of our attention. No, and I appreciate you taking the I appreciate you taking the, the no, time. Criticism's good. It's it's important to it's, it's not really a criticism much as like a like how that decision was made and, and why. And and um James Swanson kind of brought brought that up and that's kinda of where I I didn't even really it didn't even really dawn on me, which I think is interesting until he, he wrote the book on the, the funeral yeah, man tree. Hunt and yes, yeah. Well that, he, a couple of books. Yeah. Right. And Very he, good writer. Right, and he brought up the, kind of our, our fascination with Booth and the Booth family and yeah. and how it's strange, kind of from a historic standpoint. We don't, he's the only figure that we really kind of, I don't want to say celebrate because that's not it at all, but the intrigue around him is is so different than around yeah. other famous murderers. It's, it's funny that um, most people know more about Booth's life than they know about Ulysses Grant's life. Mm -hmm. Okay, If you look at Ulysses Grant's life, it, it's pretty incredible. It's nearly as incredible as Lincoln. He wasn't born poor, but Grant's father knew John Brown. People should know this, mm -hmm. and they should also know and reflect on it that when Grant died, he had his head on a Bible. But instead, what we know is that Booth died basically choking to death and uh, on, a, on the porch of a farm, that he, and he didn't know where he was. And um, he died the death he deserved, mm -hmm. probably, and Grant died the way he deserved. That's interesting. Right. Yeah, and everybody knows he says useless and <coughs> expires, and Booth yeah. did, and yeah. It, it is. Fa it really is fascinating when you think about it. You know, we were talking on a car ride. You know why? I, 
Do you think maybe it's something because we don't have the visual that we're more willing to talk about it? Whereas Kennedy, you know, you have the pictures, you have yeah. the video. Um, is it because we're so far removed, maybe? Maybe um, so. But Booth was an actor, and he did leave the stage <laughs> yeah. in the dramatic way that he predicted he would. Have to give him credit for understanding the audience. We're still his audience. Right. And I think yeah. it, with it being within, what, six weeks of the second inaugural and yes. you know, a few weeks away from Lee's surrender, I mean, like everything just coming together as it did makes yeah. it such. On Good Friday. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's another so good point. Mary Lincoln yeah. always held that Lincoln was the greatest man since Christ. And because of when he died and how he died and what he had done. And the majority of the people, at least in the North, agreed with her. And that's hard for us to grasp today. Mm -hmm. So th it's an insight into their world. And maybe a lot of people still believe it. It's true in one sense, because as far as we can tell, in English, there are more books written about Lincoln mm -hmm. than about anybody except for Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, in other languages, it might be different. But in English, they're the big two. Right, over 200 years, too. So it's not, you know, you've got yeah. other people have centuries of a head start, yeah. <laughs> too, so... I got a question for you. What is your favorite item in the collection <laughs> and why? Oh, that's a tough one, Nick, because it changes once in a while. Depends what I've been looking at or thinking about. Currently, then we'll go. Currently, then, yeah. Um, the Lincoln's family photo album, and then separately, relatedly, Robert Lincoln's photo album and his wife Mary Harlan Lincoln's photo album is really neat. There's this story that a lot of people know that when P.T. Barnum brought his, some of his circus stars to the White House, I think in 1863, so that they could show off and meet the Lincolns, and General Tom Thumb, who was about two and a half feet tall, and his wife Lavinia Warren, were there, and Robert Lincoln refused to come downstairs to meet them because he thought it was in bad taste, basically, to show off little people mm -hmm. as part of a circus act. Well, Robert Lincoln's got the CDV of General and Mrs. Tom Thumb in his family photo album. <laughs> so it's that sort of repulsion attraction thing, yeah. I mm -hmm. guess. But they were famous, mm -hmm. and they were apparently interesting, nice people. When you look at the pictures somebody's got in their personal collection, it really shows something. Mary Lincoln, in her 17 years of miserable widowhood, had managed to collect a picture of Shakespeare and a picture of Jesus and a picture of the Virgin Mary and a picture of the Tsar of Russia and the Kaiser of Germany and several little children around here in Chicago whose names we don't know, unfortunately, because she didn't write their names mm -hmm. on them. But they're all in the same photo album. They all mean something in the same form. They're all sold in the exact same form, 25-cent collectibles of your, your neighbor's kids and of Jesus and of Shakespeare. Wow. That's, <laughs> and that's so awesome. there's an insight into people. And, and that's what I've been thinking about the last few weeks, is how much more we can learn about their mental world mm -hmm. by looking at how they collected stuff. It doesn't tell you everything. It's a kind of a cross-section, though. And I, I like that a lot because you're taking real, tangible history and then combining it with speculation and you know imagination. Yes. And you kind of can just let yourself wander a little bit with, 
what were they doing with this? Yeah. I just think that's so neat. And it's, a re it's related to the little bigger question of what books did they read? Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of Mary's books because she signed her books, sometimes dated them. Abraham didn't care about stuff. He didn't sign his books. We have a lot of his law office books. But we have a few other books that he read for fun. Does it, in fact, mean that he read them, that they were in his personal possession? And does it mean, in fact, that they had influenced his thinking? Well, you think about your own habits and try to answer them for another person. Mm -hmm. Are you what you read? Or are you who your friends are? Is it your books or is it your photo collection? Well, Nick and I are friends and we read a lot of Lincoln stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe that's it. And I think you have pictures of me in the Lincoln books. No? No. no that would be weird. No, but that, but that shows up too. And once a year, roughly, we get a question. Once from Canada, somebody calls up and says, I found this old photo album, great, great grandpas, you know, and, and all these cousins. And at the end, there's Abraham Lincoln and there's Mary Lincoln. So we're related to them, right? No, <laughs> lots of people in that day had their whole family photo album either beginning or ending with Abraham and Mary pictures. Wow, that's, that's great. Very interesting, very neat. Uh, so we talked about some of the you know more famous items that you have. We talked about the Gettysburg Address. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you get that out and you're moving it, what's it like to well, know that you know, you, you have <laughs> If you trip and fall, you're yeah. ruining a priceless document. No. Yeah. I, I don't worry about tripping and falling. <laughs> I do worry about holding it as steady as I can. When I said that light very slowly degrades to ink, that the regular atmosphere and everything that's in it today slowly degrades the paper, that's our chief concern. And we don't want to jostle it either. It was removed from the book that it was originally bound into by Edward Everett, the main speaker at Gettysburg, mm -hmm. in 1864. Lincoln wrote it out for Edward Everett so that it could be the last two pages of the big thick book that was mostly his speech <laughs> that day, which was sold for charity in New York to benefit wounded soldiers during the war. Well, when the state of Illinois and its children acquired oh, it right, yeah. in 1943 because it was being auctioned in New York. Kids were asked to send in five Lincoln pennies or a nickel or you know, whatever to buy it. And Mr. Marshall Field III wrote a check for the rest of it. Uh, that it was removed from that book. So it's now mounted alone in a beautiful uh, mahogany, I think, f frame. But, you know, it's not in perfect shape anymore. How could it be? It's 150 years. It's got a very small tear beginning on one of those leaves. And everything I do here is to try to prevent that tear from growing or the ink from fading even a little bit. Ours is in the best condition of any of the five copies of it that Lincoln wrote out for different reasons. Two of them are incomplete. It was before he'd finished the speech. And then three of them are complete in different ways, including the one here. So when I carry that, I'm worried about its um, long-term stability. And the same goes for the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which is even more fragile by a long shot. It's on vellum, which buckles like the surface of a pond or the ocean. And in uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, 
but even some of his lower level, lower level letters and Mary's also, and the spines on the books that Mary signed. We don't want to wear these out. Man, I'm starting to get anxiety here. <laughs> I know when I go to sleep, if something's wrong with my house, I have nightmares that it gets worse. Do you, do you, do you have nightmares <laughs> about that? Uh? I, a, a little bit. Oh, it's measurable, actually. Our conservator, who's a 30-year veteran in this field, measures the Gettysburg Address exactly every time we put it into the museum and every time it comes out and goes back to the vault. And it grows when it's on display because the humidity is higher over there wow. than it is in the vault by about 20% roughly. So this is measurable that the paper is still alive. It's still taking in moisture and then it gives it out again. The thing is not sealed airtight, mm -hmm. obviously, like the Declaration of Independence is in the National Archives. Yeah. Ours is not sealed tight. It's still breathing, you could say. Wow. That's, that's cool. That's deep. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. But it's still also when we talk about li living and breathing <laughs> documents that it's literal and figurative. That's so neat. Um, we do have, and I wanted to thank you so much for your time. We're getting, we're, we're running a little bit up to our hour that we talked about, maybe a little over. Um, so thank you so much um, for your time, Dr. Cornelius. We do end every show with a with a kind of a weekly feature. We call it This Week in Lincoln. Mm -hmm. When we have guests on, we ask them to supply it. We didn't tell you ahead of time, but normally it's mm -hmm. like when Lincoln pops up in pop culture or something funny. Well, so today's I, July 21st, a bad day for the Union at Bull Run in 1861. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not necessarily This Week in History, although that's impressive that you just... Yeah, that's, <laughs> um, but for the future, we basically have some, you know, uh, any example of Lincoln in pop culture that's funny because he tends to pop up all the time. But for this week, um, I just wanted you to maybe answer what, in your opinion, is the strangest piece in the collection for this week in Lincoln? The strangest piece in the collection. Uh, I'd say it's the hot dog plate with Lincoln's face in the hot dog part of it. You know, one of those plastic three-segment picnic plates that you oh, get yeah, where yeah. your hot dog goes in one and your potato salad goes in one and your creamed corn or your brownie goes in the third? Well, Lincoln's under the hot dog section <laughs> on this picnic plate. That's a tribute to something unimportant. In yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and, and about about how old is the? Uh, it's about thirty years old, thirty-five years old, I think. Cool. Is that in the vault with the Gettysburg Address? It's near the vault, Nick, <laughs> it, but it's not in the same um, conditions, shall we say? So, so the it, person it is safe down there, yeah, though. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> so the person who had a stroke of genius and said, "We're going to put it for probably a Fourth of July picnic an Abraham Lincoln hot dog plate," mm -hmm. that person has something now in the Lincoln collection forever not far from a handwritten copy of the Gettysburg Address. It's within the same city block. <laughs> Speaking of the collections and, you know, where do people go if they're interested in maybe sending an item in or just supporting, um, you know, all this stuff? Where should they go and look at? Well, uh, they can email me if they have a question about a book or uh, an old item. If they want to support us, they can join our foundation which is you know, across the street and helps our cultural and educational programming. Sometimes when they have a little extra money, they buy a neat thing off of the auction market for us. They did that for me a couple years ago 
pop, pops to mind with an artist nobody had ever heard of who did a really neat middle drawing of Lincoln in 1865. The guy went on to have a commercial art career in New York for a few decades. That was kind of fun. And they can also just come and visit us because you're going to have to buy a ticket to get into the museum. And, and they and can find that, you online too, I believe, to, right? Yes, we are. ALPLM.org is uh, one way to get to us. You guys on social media at all? We are all over social media. President Lincoln <laughs> is yeah. our is our name. Oh, perfect. That's great. Yeah, and I believe it's at ALMPM for Twitter, I believe. Is, yeah. is that correct? Yeah. Outstanding. Nick, did you have any other questions? No, this has been yeah. fantastic. Uh, I mean, I could sit here all day, but I know you're very busy. We appreciate it so got much. Three um, other visitors later today. It's a popular day. So no, outstanding. I'm glad, Great. Well, that, I'm glad you could come. And I thank agree. you so I much could, for giving us time. I could spend all day as well. It. We don't want to take up too much of your time. So, Dr. Cornelius, thank you so much for joining us. And to the listeners, thanks for tuning in. Next week, we will be at the Lincoln Home. Um, so, continue to walk through the world with Mail Store None and with Charity for All. And we will see you next week.